Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm perched in an eerie above the City of London, in a sense, more or less. Yeah, the Eagle's Nest. The Eagle's Nest, uh, here in the main building of City University London. And I'm in the company of Stephen Kahn, who is Chief Executive of Expert Insights Direct to the Public. You've got to correct me already. I'm, I'm the editor of the conversation. <laughs> But the conversation slogan is expert insights, comma, direct to the public, according to the... Yeah, okay, okay, uh, <laughs> I, I'll give you that, uh, but, but, but chief, definitely not chief executive, um, so chief executive is Max Landry, who's okay. on his way in, um, and doing sort of meetings all morning, um, so I'm the editor, so I purely deal with the editorial side of the project. Right, 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 and that's what we're talking about today. And actually, for, for a lot of people... The conversation will be known, but for others it won't be. So could you just fill us in, Stephen, on what it does? Yeah, so primarily the conversation is a journalistic outlet. It is a news analysis and uh, and comment service. Um, it's for the general public. It differs from other news outlets in that it is entirely written by academics, so that is experts in their area. So that is how we uh, guarantee that the uh, the people who are writing truly know what they're writing about. It's, um, it's people who have done years, sometimes entire lifetimes of research in that area. So they um, write about what is topical. We ensure that the content is on the news agenda, sometimes setting that news agenda. But the people that do the writing truly know what they're writing about. Now, if I'm an expert on spiders, mm. as opposed to an expert on ISIS or ISIL, how do I make my pitch to you? Well, you can pitch through the site. There is a mm. direct pitching facility which mm. allows you to explain a little bit about what you want to write about and what your background is. And that will then be channeled in the case of the spider expert to um, probably the environment editor or possibly the health editor, depending on what the spiders are up to. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that's that's one way. Um, another way is through um, you know, the, the traditional method of calling up and, uh, and, and chatting with one of the editors here. Uh, we have. 14 editors based um, in the UK, um, but we're also, we have a sister site in Australia. Um, so, um, so yeah, it, and, and that operates along the same lines. Mm -hmm. Academics and prose, normally considered a thorny topic. Yeah. There's a big debate going on in the US at the moment, based on a new book by Stephen Pinker. Yeah. about the inability of academics to express themselves yeah. well. And I'm wondering how you're finding it, the team that's here. A number of you have very advanced scholarly backgrounds, and you're all intellectuals of different kinds, but you've eluded the complete grasp of the academy. So what's it like doing that work of translation, editing, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I personally come from much more of a um, media background, um, um, it would be sort of a stretch beyond all reality to describe me as an academic. Um, but um, and coming from that background, it was suggested uh, to me by a number of my 
um, former colleagues that it was a crazy move and, <laughs> and the academics can't write and they can't write in time and it would be a nightmare and and I kind of thought well let's see and I, I have to say I've been very pleasantly surprised um, what I've found generally is that actually academics can write some of them can write very quickly some of them can write exceptionally well in in a, in a style that's very suitable for the the general public, um, but you know there are those that need um, some guidance and some help, and some of them are very upfront about that. And a lot of them actually surprise themselves at how quickly they can turn their hand to a different style of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I would say on the whole, it's it's been a very positive experience. Um, others. Other editors here, I think, would, would largely tell you the same thing. Um, you know, we cover a wide variety of subjects, and I think inevitably um, social sciences such as politics, um, economics, a lot of these uh, academics are more used to this, this style of work that they've written for other publications before. Um, other areas, perhaps less so. But, you know, I think um, you know journalism and journalistic writing isn't complex, and I think it's part of our task to demystify it and say, look, you know, you've got great knowledge and skills and background. You can very easily relay this information to the public in a way that's interesting, fascinating, entertaining, even, and we can help you do that. And, you know, what we're finding is that the vast majority are very excited about that um, about that prospect. One of the things that is relevant here in the UK, and I think to a certain extent in Australia, where I do a bit of work as well, is that there are state-based incentives now for faculty to have what's called impact. And impact isn't just about the number of other scholars that have read your work or the number of times your work has been put on a a syllabus, it's also about your perceived significance in the wider community, isn't Mm -hmm. it? So there's an incentive there that you can draw on to a certain extent, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think it's any secret that um, academia is now, um, there's there's a lot of pressure on academics to to communicate widely with the general public and and share their expertise. And... um, you know, we, we, we feel that that's, uh, that's right and uh, we feel that we've got a part to play in that uh, process. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're comfortable with that. I think when, the, when, um, when uh, a populace invests um, a substantial amount of money in um, academia and academics, that there's... Um, there's a good case to be made for that uh, that populace to expect to engage with that expertise and to um, to for it for it to be shared yeah, widely. Sure, absolutely. Now, I wanted to pick up on something you said a moment ago before we go more deeply into the idea of the conversation itself, and that is, you said you wanted to demystify journalism a bit, and you said that journalism is really not that complicated. Mm. I think of it, although I've done a fair bit of it in an amateurish and largely incompetent way, it's very complicated. Um, my sort of first response to that would be to ask in which way, but um, I, 
you know, I, you know, I've been a journalist all my working life, very much at the, at the sort of front line of journalism mm. and, and news and as a, as a reporter and a correspondent and, and as a news editor. Um, so, you know, I kind of owe my, my living <laughs> to journalism and um, I'm deeply, keenly aware of the, the skills that are involved and also the knowledge and dedication that goes to making great journalism. So um, I'm you know, in no way trying to um, trying to take anything away from that. I think you know it's it's a, an honourable trade and a, a profession with some truly gifted practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the 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 whole era that we've just sort of come through the past five or six years um, of, uh, of, of where the, the sort of buzzwords has been citizen journalism, I think has had um, an impact on the wider public. I think that this discussion of citizen journalism made people believe that, hey, I can do that, it's easy. Now. I think there's two sides to that. I think that there are some basic skills, some of which have been enhanced or facilitated by uh, improved technology, mm-hmm. which which have actually given the wider public access to uh, an ability to be able to communicate widely. And I think you know that's a good thing. Um, I think it possibly also led some people to think somewhat negatively of journalism and to think, well, you know, hey, I can do this, what's all the fuss about? Right. And I'm not sure that's that's entirely right. I think that that, that actually um, detracted from, you know, the kind of many hours and many years of, uh, of effort and skill and training that goes into creating some of the best uh, reporters and uh, correspondents mm-hmm. um, sort of practicing around the world at the moment. Um, however, I think if we take the first half of that, the, the, the facilitation, and weld it to the, the different but not entirely unrelated experience that academics have, then we've got quite a potent uh, uh, weapon there that can be used to explore the world and to communicate with the world in a way that's, that draws on the skills of journalism but isn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't negate um, from from the world of traditional journalism and, and in many ways complements it fantastically well. So I think that that's what we're doing is um, we, we are sort of discovering um, a new form of journalism in the conversation um, which isn't citizen journalism. It, it, it draws on some of the, the experiences of that, that phase um, but it also draws on the fact that real journalism and Great journalism is. It takes time. It takes thought. It takes investment, um, and it's it's ultimately smart. And I think that that's what we're we're producing here. It's not citizen journalism. It's a new no. form of smart journalism. Smart journalism. But there's an interesting question of authorship there, isn't there, Stephen? Most mm. of you are used to having a byline. Mm. Sometimes to having your own column. If you're a foreign correspondent, for example, or you're a labour relations or economics correspondent, then it really matters that you say X or Y for the Scotsman or for the BBC. That authorship is rather taken away from you in this model, isn't it? You're, aren't you all 
commissioning editors and sub-editors in some sense, and not so much authoring journalists in the way you work. That, that's absolutely right. Um, the authorship passes to the academic in this model. Um, we work here as editors. Um, nobody's come to work here thinking that they become the sort of star or the name. Um, they've come here to engage with an ethos, with a new form of journalism, to try and communicate uh, a message, to communicate truth, um, to explain and to help understand and understanding. And, you know, I think that in itself can be quite a, a thrilling ride and, and a great experience for great journalistic experience for all of us who are involved here. So there's a purity about it in that sense that I think um, spreads from what we're doing. Um, but I think it also, I hope it spreads through the, the, the content as well. And you know, we want to we wanna deliver content that's useful, that's, that's, that's right, that's true, that helps people understand and that mm -hmm. doesn't far from trying to cloud messages or trying to spin it actually sort of it actually sort of sheds light on things. I, I should say at this point that I first heard about the conversation before it started because I read a story in maybe The Observer about its first ideas. So I got interested in that. I've been a reader from the beginning and I've also written a bit for it. And in my role as an author, I've been astonished at the care that's been given to my prose. By contrast, frankly, with what happens to my prose when it appears in newspapers. Staggered. Well, that's, that's heartening to hear, and um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of very pleased, and that's, that's exactly the, the, um, the way that we do approach uh, uh, editing, and you know, it, it's, good to, it's good, to, good to hear a very positive experience such as that, and you know, it's not, it's not the only one I've heard, so um, that's definitely the sort of standard that we try to keep up. Um, I put a smile on his face, listeners, just a small one. <laughs> Let's come back, he's now laughing. But when you mention, Stephen, if I can cut in there, sure. this technology issue and yeah. how it opened up citizen journalism, whenever everybody mentions that, I think immediately of all the erroneous information via Twitter that we got during the hotel occupation in India, yeah. A few years ago. Yeah. Ast astonishing amounts of faith were put in tweets by supposed eyewitnesses on yeah. the part of the international bourgeois media. Yeah. Incredible credulity. I just, I didn't believe a word of it and much of it wasn't right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that side to it that I think is quite negative and does need the more measured and judicious experience of the yeah. reporter. But there's another side to that technology. It has undermined the political economic base to much of what you do, yeah. isn't it? So it's undermined the political and economic base to what journalists do? Yes. Yeah, well, absolutely, and this is sort of widely documented and a sort of crisis for the media that continues, um, you know, day by day. Um, there is a, you know, a funding issue across the media, the, the model that sustained newspapers in particular uh, for most of the second half of the 20th century is broken. It's not going to be coming back in the form that it once existed in. Um, and the economic downturn from sort of 2009 onwards, <coughs> um, excuse me, um, probably accelerated that somewhat. So we find ourselves in a position that. Um, 
the way that we consume media and information has fundamentally changed. There have to be new ways of, uh, of, of addressing that, addressing that potential democratic deficit that that throws up. And, you know, I think that we are one of those models. We certainly don't replace mm -hmm. everything that um, newspapers did or do. Um, we don't... Um, we don't claim that. Um, we are a source of information, a source of, I hope, and I believe, trusted information, quite different from you know, the, the sort of polar opposite from the, the one that you just highlighted, um, the, the sort of Twitter example from the, uh, the Bombay Hotel um, uh, occupations and uh, terror attacks that you highlighted. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I think I think we are sort of one way forward um, in a world in which you know I'm optimistic that there will be a number of ways forward. Well, I, I was interested yesterday. I read in Ad Age, which is one of the biblical tomes of the advertising industry in the United States, and I think it's the Financial Times is about to uh, meter its ad revenue model. Yeah, it's going to change from. Advertisers paying newspapers based on the number of times that their ads are clicked on by viewers to the amount of time viewers spend having clicked. Mm. That's going to make it even more complicated should that become an industry standard. That's fascinating. Um, it doesn't entirely surprise me. I mean, many within in the sort of new journalism world have been obsessed with this idea of bounce rate and the amount of time that people spend on, on pages for, for you know, a number of years now. So that, um, that advertising model, I guess, was it was inevitable that that would um, evolve in that way. And I think it also um, it highlights an issue with, uh, sort of wider issue with the commercial interaction um, with the dissemination of information as, as we move forward. Um, you know, one of one of the issues that we that we are tackling is this um, slow but inevitable decline in the number of specialist correspondents that, that once existed within the news media, and um, particularly within newspapers. Now, those specialists are often the first to go when cuts are made because they you know, they're gifted, experienced journalists mm -hmm. who command. Mm -hmm inevitably um, significant salaries. So they go, what replaces those correspondents? Well, often in, um, often in newspapers, it's, um, it's, it's less experienced journalists, it's, uh, it's junior reporters who are taken from you know, one day covering um, a demonstration about um, cuts to uh, education funding, uh, and then the following day they could be plunged into a science story. Um, so I think that creates an issue. Um, I think uh, the, 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 there's an inevitable vacuum there. Um, and then that, that also spreads out into, uh, into the world of um, um, PR and marketing and uh, the bu budgets of... PR and marketing and branded content agencies increase, they can then pepper um, new media organisations but also old media organisations with much reduced staffing levels with content that they believe is um, 
valuable to them and to their clients. So I think it's important that, um, that these new models of commercially driven uh, media are monitored very closely, but also um, that not every model um, in the new world is, uh, is driven by commercial forces, and you know, we obviously aren't. In the United States now, there are many more students wanting to do PR or public relations than journalism. Yeah. And J schools in universities are becoming part of the not so much problem or solution or the issue, but are becoming all three as they try to work out what exactly the ethics of public relations should be in this context. Yeah. No, I think that there's a, there's a sort of clear... In, in many aspects, in many realms of the new media, there's a clear blur between um, what is journalism and what is what is PR, and, and this as this branded content begins to sort of infuse um, the sort of wider world, and, and I think it's it's really important that there is uh, an estate within the um, within society that provides a check on that and. Um, you know, that can truly interrogate content claims and from, from an objective point of view. Mm. I think the academy is potentially one of those one so of those checkpoints. Am I right in thinking then, as our, our conversation, I can use that expression unfortunately, develops that the conversation, i.e. the entity that you edit here in London, is a response to a convergence where academics are becoming more like journalists? It's, I don't know if it's a response to that. I think it's... it's Which generates it's, it's, um, it's certainly moving in a world in which that, that is happening and it's helping f to facilitate that and it's, uh, it's almost taking advantage of that potential or, or sort of shedding a light on that potential. I think... Um, the, the purpose of the conversation is really to to inform and educate and to provide a service to the public, um, but that opportunity, um, to, the opportunity to do that, has been afforded by this um, this demand on academics to share their knowledge, uh, to disseminate their information, and. Then sort of we step into this field as the facilitators of um, making them more like journalists or give it, or providing journalistic skills and, and introducing our journalistic skills to their world. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned the public mm. complex concept always, mm. isn't it? How do you define or how do you understand your readership, uh, given that you have these locations? I think in Melbourne. London, and you've got one or two people based in other places, haven't you? Yeah, we've got, um, we have an editor based in Jakarta at the moment, um, and we have an editor based in Scotland, and we are looking into a number of other areas as well. Um, I mean, that's interesting. We, you know, we, we, like all news organisations, or all, all news organisations with ambitions to be international to have a global reach you've got to balance what's of interest within your um, national area within your um, or within your uh, locale um, but also um, 
tackling issues that are of, of wider importance. Um, and, and, you know, I think we've got, uh, we have a, a great opportunity in the, the, the spread of universities. Um, so in the UK, we've got something like 35, 36 universities in membership, but um, you know, we have many more universities. I think we're, there's about 120 or so uh, uh, who we've worked with in the UK, um, or whose academics we've worked with. So that you know that inevitably and instantly provides a geographical spread, mm. that, um, and and you know a geographical spread that sadly has been lost to many uh, news organisations. Um, but then of course we we sort of break out of of that area and. You know, here in London, it's obviously a very international city. Uh, it's it's sort of heart of kind of global finance, politics, um, trade. So we view ourselves as being part of that world, part of this city, yeah. and outward looking. You know, we're keen to encourage contributions from around the world. We, in many ways, operate like a foreign desk. Uh, so, you know, this morning, for instance, we're covering events in uh, Hong Kong. Um, that's analysis by experts in the area from the UK, but we're also um, we'll also be posting a piece uh, within the next few hours uh, from the streets of Hong Kong. So, um, so yeah, there's a... There's a um, I, can't, I can't remember where we started with this, but uh, I think uh, I think I think you were asking about how do we target our audience. Um, and who do you think of as your public? Is your public those demonstrators? As we speak, it's the last day of September 2014, and Occupy Hong Kong is one of the organisations associated with major street protests about the failure of uh, the mainland Chinese government to democratise to the extent that Hong Kongers would like, at least some of them. And while the British moralised about this, needless to say, we couldn't give a fuck about democratising things at all when we had free run of the place, but never mind, let's put that to one side. So that's what we're alluding to in our conversation. <laughs> I mean, is, if you're asking me, is, is Occupy Hong Kong, or are members of Occupy Hong Kong potential readers of the conversation, then absolutely. Um, you know, I, I view potential readers of the conversation as people who are seeking informed, yeah. smart information uh, about potentially about their lives, potentially about the lives of others, potentially about subjects that they're just interested in. You know, so that's a, that's a wide range of people, but, you know, it's... It's information that uh, was once quite widely provided by the print media, um, and in some areas still is provided by the print media. But it's about sort of growing that, growing that zone, yeah, yeah. and and feeding into that zone because everything we publish is published under Creative Commons, so other media can republish that, can, can pick it up. And yeah, I've noticed that in Australia, for example, the special broadcasting service SBS yeah. does that. One of the things that I compare it to is the, the Economist, not the editorial pages, which have a clear political economic agenda in the Economist, but the reporting pages, yeah. which largely do not. Uh, I mean, the reporting pages are kind of anti-fascist, pro-democratic, pro-environment, but they're not just pro-business. Yeah. They're actually much more sceptical. And I think of it as being an example yeah. of a newspaper, which is what it calls itself, even though one thinks of it as a magazine, that's rather akin to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, 
was, I, I, you know, I would take that as a compliment. Um, I think the economist is a very high quality product mm, and, and yeah. very skillfully uh, edited. Um, I would say there's some fundamental differences mm-hmm. because I, I do think that there's an editorial line in the in the Economist that, um, and I don't I don't think they would shy away from that that um, that does run through its news pages, um, and I think that it's fairly fundamental to what we do that we don't have an editorial line. Uh, our, our contributors take lines. Um, it's not uncommon for us to have a nine o'clock uh, editorial meeting in which uh, some of our editors say, wouldn't it be great if we had a piece that said this? And we all agree and we think, wow, yeah. And then we go and seek the person that we think will give us that line and they say, hey guys, you've, completely, you've got this completely wrong. This is what the story is. And you know, we're very open to that. Um, we're also very open to providing balance if we have a piece one day that makes a particular claim or takes a certain line we do we do try and use our our journalistic skills to commission against that or to commission in a way that um, presents a different take on it so yeah i mean i think uh to to come back to the the um the comparison with the economist um you know, if if that's about if, if if we're providing content that reaches those levels of quality and is um, and is presented in a way. The other thing that that you know I would say is great about the Economist is it's very funny and witty, <laughs> and, and and I do think that um, it's it's a challenge for all news organisations dealing with serious subjects to use a bit of wit and a bit of style to engage readers and, and we try to do that the economist does it very well of course um so so yeah there, there are some I, I you know i think that there are similarities it's, it's interesting to hear you say that um but there are key differences as well one of the things that people talk about in terms of saving journalism and i should say this means saving journalism largely in the global north or first world journalism is thriving in a conventional sense yeah. in other parts of the booming. Yeah. You know, I some of my work is in Colombia. You can in a Colombian city, you can walk by a newspaper office early in the morning. There are still people lined up down the street to yeah. buy their classified advertising space to sell yeah. their properties, their cars, etc. Yeah. And there are lots of journalists being hired in lots of places as readers, as literate people, as alphabetized people emerge around the world. But in this first world where it's been a settled profession for a long time and things are under threat. You know, it's clear that the times are different. Could you explain a bit more about the business model here? You mentioned earlier having over 30 British universities as partners. Uh, what is the role of those partners? To the extent that you can tell us, I'm not asking for anything that's secret or commercial in conflict. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of very happy to. Uh, the... Um, so the business side of this organisation is actually run by someone else, as, as we mentioned at the start. Um, so, I, you know, I do run the editorial side of it. But, um, so we have, I think, 35 members at the moment. Um, we started out with 13 um, just mm. over a year ago. Wow. Um, and um, so, yeah, we, we've grown the base of people who are contributing financially to the sustainability of this project. Um, so all of these members 
pay us, uh, they pay, they all pay the same amount. That payment does not guarantee them any particular amount of coverage or uh, a particular amount of articles. What it does do is it funds the project and, and pays for the editors that we have working here. Um, so anyone from any university, any academic from any university can potentially write for us, um, assuming that they're writing on their subject area and that the editors are happy that the idea that's pitched is a smart, cogent idea that, that, that works for us editorially. Um, so that's, that's sort of largely the funding of the project. Now, we, we, we get some, here in the UK, we get some, get some other money from the Higher Education Funding Council, which is a sort of umbrella body for the universities here, um, and uh, from its equivalents in Scotland and Wales. Um, and yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's really how, it's, it's a sort of straightforward, you know, the, the, the educational establishments pay fees. And yeah. So how would you compare yourselves, I'm still trying to locate you in terms of genres and platforms, yeah. in relation to public broadcasting, uh, is this Radio Four with written words? In terms of, say, the BBC, is this NPR National Public Radio with words? In terms of the United States, I, I sort of, I do love the way that, like, sort of within the world of journalism, we're all kind of desperate to kind of locate new businesses <laughs> within. The realms of something that we know. Well, maybe it's not just children. Well, maybe I'm that's just human nature. I'm generally a desperate person. So <laughs> this is simply one more instance. <laughs> not at all. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't think I don't think we can. We, I, I genuinely think this is something different and new. I think that we will do things that will remind readers of NPR. That will remind readers of Radio Four. Economist, but it's a very widespread of information. Um, it is fundamentally different in that it is written by academics mm. with the collaborative uh, support of, of editors, um, and the funding model is different. So, it, yeah, I mean, there are parallels with public radio in the US because it does come out of the public purse, but it comes out of the public purse in a slightly, uh, a slightly kind of diversionary way um, in that it comes from the universities, it comes from the, the academy. And, um, well, lots of NPR affiliates, of course, are on campus. Sure. They are university stations. Sure. And, yeah, I mean, there's, there's kind of an obvious parallel yeah. there, but then... That's coming out of one university, whereas we are coming out of uh, well, we're coming out of a huge group of hundreds of universities, um, but funded by in the UK a core of, of 35, 36 universities at the moment, and we hope to increase that number over the next year. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, there's obvious there's a number of parallels, mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of similarities, but. I don't think you can place us uh, as a whole and uh, say this is a sort of written version of this <laughs> or this is, you know, it's it's kind of, it, there are echoes of many other organisations and 
ultimately, though, it is something, I think, quite different. Now, speaking of that, Stephen, when I first moved to New York 20 years ago, I just moved back to Britain after 20 years living in the Americas. When people from NBC would come and interview me for some TV story, they would be a producer, a journalist interviewer, a camera operator, a sound person. By the time I left, all these people were one person. Yeah. And the one person was not only doing a news story for that night's telecast, he or she was writing for MSNBC, CNBC, CNBC Africa, CNBC Asia, CNBC Europe, you name it. So they were doing about five different written versions yeah. and maybe five different video versions yeah. and doing it on their own. I'm sure there will be a vast array of mental health research stories written about journalists cracking up under this pressure. But where does the conversation sit in this in terms of multimedia? You're an online entity. These things are normally written pieces with maybe one visual, aren't they? With links sometimes to related stories or to research articles that people can consult. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very much a proponent of the written word and uh, my background is very much sort of rooted in written journalism. Um, and I think that the, the sort of explosion of, of new media, one of the most exciting things about things one of the most exciting things about it has been this renewed interest in, in the written world. And, um, you know, we've had, inevitably you hear a lot about the, the, the negative sides of, mm. uh, of change and, uh, and, and, and new media and what does this mean for newspapers and it's a disaster and journalism's dying. And, you know, there's clearly concerns in, in, the, uh, in the financial models we've, we've already spoken about. Um, threatened and these are tough times for a lot of experienced journalists. However, we do have platforms that have emerged that offer a great way forward for the written world. There's been an explosion of the written world in the last decade and the general public, I believe, writes a lot more than it did 15-20 mm. years ago. Um, and I think that's exciting. I think that opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, you know, we've, we've sort of damned, well, you've damned Twitter in this interview. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you've got to remember that Twitter, it may just be, you know, a couple of sentences, but it gets people, it gets people writing, it gets people mm -hmm. expressing themselves. I think that's exciting. I think that that's to be yeah. explored. I think it's to be investigated and, and I think it's to be um, to be encouraged and, and I think in a sort of wider sense we we move forward that um, that trend of of greater public exposure to writing greater academic interest in writing um, short pieces that explain what it is that they do um, Many academics have taken to this themselves, of course, before you know, before long before the conversation existed. Um, certainly, long before it existed in the UK, um, you know, by blogging um, and by writing their own uh, their own work. Um, and we, uh, we, I feel, complement that we we move that on, and that we offer the services of an editor to the academics. We. Um, help them to make 
make that work, potentially um, help them be read by a greater number of people. Um, and so, yeah, oh, that's a kind of long-winded way of me saying that I think that, um, that the written word's extremely important and is fundamental to what we are doing. However, um, <laughs> that's not to say that we are not interested as we move forward in video content, audio content. Um, you know, clearly that the technology that facilitates people to uh, consume that sort of information is moving very rapidly. Um, so just last week, for instance, we carried a video interview um, with... Um, Michael Keating from Aberdeen University on the aftermath of the Scottish referendum mm. um, and that was put together pretty quickly um, and it was quite an in-depth and detailed discussion with him about um, what this means uh, for the future of the UK. Um, so yeah, I mean I, I would expect the future of the conversation to contain a lot more of that sort of content but that will not be at the expense of written content, which I think, you know, as I've said, the past decade has been a great decade for people reading and writing. Mm. And I couldn't be more. Sure it's a great revival of epistolary culture, too, in the sense of writing letters, but letters that are often now very public. Yeah. Because um, that had died. That had gone. Uh, nobody, ten years ago, nobody was writing letters, um, except if they were applying for a job, but now people are sort of writing to each other constantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had one more uh, question for you, Stephen, about conversation. Thank you for giving up so much of your day to this. And that is, again, to the extent this can be disclosed, plans for expansion, because there are, there are two things that are running through my mind as I ask this question. One is the behemoth sometimes known as the United States of America. Yeah. And the second is other languages. Yeah. Um, both of which are areas that, that we're looking at. Um, so the United States, we will, I would expect us to have editors publishing in the United States in the very near future. Um, so, yeah, we we're aware of that behemoth. And, You've heard uh, it. Uh, yeah. And you know where it is on the coffee cup. If we had an, if we had a little atlas here running around the coffee cup, you could locate USA in a in the blink of an eye. Really, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, look, we we, we kind of completely understand the importance of the United States as uh, an academic powerhouse, but also as a media. Um, Giant and, uh, and and the huge number of uh, consumers and potential readers who are there now already. Um, I think about half of our readers are based in the US. Are they really? So is, is that true of the Australian one as well, or is that just the UK conversation? I can I can only speak for the UK numbers at the moment, but um, I think in July of this year we had something like sort of five six million readers in about half of those were, were in the US so that's including content that's republished yeah. on other platforms sure. the majority of the people that republish our content are, are in the US um, so you know, we're regularly republished or referenced by Washington Post, New York Times and these 
grandees of, of uh, the American media, but also um, the exciting new media that's popping up there from Quartz to Ars Technica and others regularly take a lot of conversation content. Um, and I, I would see the US, uh, when, when we do um, have editors based in the US, um, sort of building on that, but also um, developing their own identity mm, and sure. their own commissions sure. and, and, um, and, and sort of working in concert um, in particular with us as a sort of Atlantic bridge, but also with our, our uh, colleagues in Australia. Um, and um, yeah, and, but of course, it's it's not just the US. As, as you've as you've highlighted, there's a global academic community um, and a global hunger for reliable, smart information um, that is on topic and, and yeah. on the cusp of the news agenda. So. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're you know we're keen to sort of spread this model out and to have editors based in other places. Um, we've had approaches to do things in other languages. That brings complexities of translation and sure. um, and, and platforms and, and how that all kind of knits together. So you know these are these are things that we've looked at. But yeah, it's we'll it's, it's it's. it's I can, it's, it's actively being considered. Yeah, yeah. The reason I mentioned the other languages was I was thinking of Spanish in particular because, yeah. as you know, in Latin America, really since Cortes, there is a long tradition of the Gronica, which is very similar to what the conversation is, uh -huh. where academics, and it started out literally with the Spanish conquistadores, use census material, yeah. for example, or other scientifically generated information to write columns, op-eds, opinion pieces, yeah. conversation style pieces, and it's never finished, never ended, and you get some of the best novelists writing this stuff as yeah. factual material, as well as so-called scholars, or scholars, we, let's call them that. Uh, so there's a, a lengthy tradition that I think would fit in really well, and I wouldn't be surprised if there were similar things in other places, certainly France and Italy are examples where there is less of an anti-intellectual element than yeah. the one we often experience in the so-called Anglo-Saxon yeah. world. Um, but listen, it's been really fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for giving up so much of your time. And um, I'd love to come back and talk to you again or some other of your colleagues as the conversation, so to speak, develops. Oh, you'd be most welcome. Thank you. Cheers.